Okay, so I'm about to get uh, a little vulnerable with you, with you, uh, and I rarely open myself up uh, in a group this size. But here we go, right? I'm going to tell you something that uh, very few people know. Here it is. I'm often late to stuff. I'm often late to stuff. Now, obviously, that's not so much of a confession, but, and it's not really a secret for those of you who actually know me, but yes, I am that guy who is always late to the groups. I'm that guy. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in part of the group of friends, and they will affectionately name this phenomenon as Dom Time. Uh, they will... Uh, they would just expect it. They're like, okay, we're meeting up at 9, so we'll tell Dom to, to come at 8.30, and he should be here about, about right. right. And so that's, that's just kind of what happens every, every time. More than anybody else this year, uh, my girlfriend Jody has had the unfortunate misfortune of seeing that in real time, pun intended. And I wanted to show you a few photos that she sent me more recently, kind of f poking fun at this bad habit. So maybe I'll get that up, if that works. Great. So, um, if you can't see the picture on the left, uh, that's a picture of a watch that, it's in a bit, bit of faint words, but it says, whatever, I'm late anyway. And all the numbers of the watch have collapsed to the bottom. And so she's found that and she said, I found your watch, that's yours. Obviously, you can read the one on the right. And I can sense it. I can already sense it. You're judging me so much because, you know, late people are terrible people. I can feel it, but please don't judge me. I'm working on it, I promise. Um, but one of, the, one of the most favorite countries I've visited is, is uh, in Zambia, in Africa. Um, the reason for that, maybe I'll get that off uh, the screen. Oh, yeah, there we go. So the, re the, reason why, um, the reason why it was one of my favorite countries to visit is because they have this cultural phenomenon in Africa. Uh, it's called African time. And what would happen is you will set a time and a place for a community event, and the earliest someone will rock up is, is like 45 minutes after you set the time. I kid you not. So when we were there, um, I, was with, I was with World Vision there, and, and you know how you can buy uh, gifts here, and you can, like you can buy a chicken or something, and, 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 you, and they promise that a person in the community over there in whatever country is going to receive a chicken? You know what I'm talking about? Not if you get me? Yeah? Okay, so all these people had bought goats, and they bought stacks and stacks of goats, and they, and they, and they, um, had a, they basically had a whole pen full of goats that, they were willing, that, that were waiting to be handed out to the villagers. And this was an exciting moment, right? Like, these guys have been literally waiting for years to get enough goats to get out to the community. The community need goats in order to, to have thriving businesses so they can self-sustain themselves in the community. And so it's, there's a huge build-up. They're really, really excited. And even in their excitement, we will say, we are giving you your goats at 10 o'clock. And the earliest some, somebody showed up is 11. I'm, I'm serious. We were just waiting there. And, and obviously, they were still very excited. Once they got there, it was party time. They were doing all these dances. It was amazing. But the earliest they got there was 11. And I love it. I love it because I would never be late in a country like Zambia. But we know that there are certain events that you just can't be late to, right? We know that. You can't be late to a job interview, for example. Don't do that. No, no. Don't do that. You can't be late on a first date. High schoolers, listen, can't be late on a first date. No. Right? You cannot be late to a house auction. Right? You might lose it. You, you can't be late to a food truck opening, otherwise you'll be lining up for hours. And of course you can't be late to a wedding. 
I've been late to a wedding. That's, that's, I won't tell you about that, but that was really, really awkward. But I think what tops the list, what tops the list of things that you absolutely cannot be late to is a funeral, right? Like, you, out of all the, you just should not be late to a funeral. Even I know that. That would look so bad. It would just be so insensitive. You don't do that. And what would be even worse was if you or I were late to a funeral of a family member. Of someone who was close to you. That'd be pretty bad, right? That wouldn't be great. But that's exactly the situation that we find here in the account of Jesus that we heard just read to us earlier. See, what's going on is we've got this account of Jesus and he's encountering a family of two sisters and a brother. And we find out that this family is very dear to Jesus, so much so that the writer wants us to know that Lazarus, the brother who's gravely ill and on the brink of death, when the messenger comes to Jesus to tell Jesus, look, Lazarus is ill, he doesn't even have to name his name. He just describes him as the one who Jesus loves and Jesus just gets it. He knows who it is automatically. The reason is because Jesus loves Martha, he loves his sister, and he loves Lazarus. You see that in verse 5 of our reading. Oh, we didn't read that, but it's just on top in verse 5. See, there's a deep connection that's here, right? A deep love that Jesus has for this particular family that he probably reserved for his own family and his own disciples. And yet, oddly enough, we heard it read to us that Jesus arrives late. Now, I'm just not talking a few minutes here, right? That's, that's okay. I'm not even talking about a few hours. If you have a look at verse 17, have a look. Verse 17 reads, On his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead and in the tomb for four days. Lazarus has been in the tomb, he's been buried, he's been dead for four days. And if you read the account more closely, what what makes it almost seem extremely rude is that Jesus decides to do two unexpected things. I mean, firstly... He doesn't come immediately after hearing of Lazarus' illness. He decides to stay at the place he was even after receiving the news and Mary and Martha's plea for help. He stays where he's at for two more days. I mean, that's a bit weird. Why would you do that? And the second thing that's a bit weird is that when Jesus does eventually leave, he doesn't tell his disciples that he's going to Bethany, right? Because Bethany is the place that Lazarus is at. He doesn't say Bethany. He says, he says instead, I'm going to go to Judea. We're going to go to Judea. He mentions another place. And and why not just say Bethany? We'll come back to this later. But I want you to imagine for a moment. Step into the shoes of Mary and Martha for a second, right? Can you imagine their disappointment? I mean, surely if there's a time to cash in being mates with Jesus and get a little something-something is when their brother is no less dying. Surely this is a moment for Jesus, the most powerful, the most holy, the worker of miracles, to prove everything that he's said about himself by healing their brother. To visibly show how much Jesus loves them by preventing his death. Any reasonable person can understand the ultimatum that death is and want to exhaust every possibility to push that back as far as possible. See, friends, in the ancient world, the fear of death was universal. One scholar puts it like this, death was like a grim adversary that everybody feared, yet nobody could defeat. 
And really, despite all the technological advancements, medical progress, the increase in life expectancy across the board, death today is still a grim adversary that we can't defeat. I mean, we've all had run-ins with the all-conquering death. I mean, it might be as impersonal as what we heard on the news just this week. It might be closer to home with a loved one. And we know that the sorts of death can range so widely from cancer to frailty to murder. And we know deep down, I know this is all very morbid on a Sunday morning, we know that this is our fate as well. We know we can't defeat it. But perhaps in our increasingly non-religious society, that same fear of death that the ancient world had and our forefathers may have had, I think that's begun to shift. I think that's begun to shift. And I'm not sure why exactly. It might be because of the medical advances. It might be because of death's inevitability. It might be just there are scientific reasons that are saying that there's nothing beyond the grave. But I think our fear of death has kind of been fused with belittling it. We kind of belittle death, don't we? I mean, we have sayings, we have euphemisms, like kicking the bucket. What does kicking the bucket mean? What does that even mean? We watch shows like Game of Thrones where viewers crave and enjoy the next unexpected death, whether they're hero or villain. We kind of joke before we eat something unhealthy like a halal snack pack that we might joke, well, we're going to die anyway. We might as well eat whatever we want. And I'm not saying that these things are bad to think or say. I do them too. But it's an observation, right, that our perspective on death, it's shifted. That is, we still fear death in a way. We don't want it. We wish it wasn't something that was in our futures. But yet we live sort of in spite of it. We can easily plan our lives irrespective of it. Death is like a whatever. It's a future reality. And perhaps this, is, this belittling is only jolted when someone close to home is at death's door or has died. I mean, this is certainly true for me. A few years back, I was 22. I was fresh out of uni. Um, I'd scored one of those grad jobs that you kind of want at the end of uni, and, and I, was, so it was, I was getting paid, it was great, I was dating at the time, things were looking great, and all of a sudden, one afternoon, one evening, sorry, I get home, and I see my mum in the kitchen, and she's crying. And in sobs, as my family kind of gather, she says that after an ultrasound, a mammogram, and a biopsy, the doctors have told her that she has cancer in her body and needed to begin extensive radiotherapy. And I just remembered my world in that moment. It was going swimmingly, but it just suddenly was rocked, right? That very moment, for the first time, I seriously considered the mortality of my mom. That she wasn't going to be here forever. I mean, I'm not naive. Of course I know that one day she's going to pass, but... I never really properly considered it. It was, it was one day. It was, it was in the future. It was something that I thought I need, didn't need to consider anytime soon. And finding out that she had cancer cells in her body just jolted me. Just jolted me into this reality. Beforehand, I thought nothing of it. I had belittled death. And I wonder, friends, this morning, I wonder if you belittle death too. Because I think if we just extend our gaze a little further than where we're naturally comfortable, we'll soon find that there is truly defeat 
in death. There is truly emptiness in death. We witness it in the grieving on the news. We hear it in the eulogies and the deep wailing of the mourning. We feel it in the emotions of losing a loved one. Friends, I know that this is morbid. I know that this is uncomfortable. There have been countless studies that, where, that show that when the topic of death is discussed, it naturally leads most hearers to kind of look for a way out to run. And if I was selling you some product here this morning, I would be doing a pretty bad job as a pitch man by introducing death. But friends, can I urge you for the remainder of our time here to sit in the discomfort and examine the solution to death that the Christian faith offers and see what encountering Jesus does in providing not just one of many solutions, but the solution, what we believe is the solution to the problem of death, or as this message is titled, the death of death. Like I mentioned at the start, Jesus encounters three people in the passage, right? Two brothers, two sisters, a brother, sorry, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And I believe that when we look at each encounter, we're going to see something to the solution of this problem of death. And we're going to look at all three. So firstly, we're going to have a look at Martha and Mary, right? the two sisters that are deep in grief. Again, try to put yourselves in their shoes for a moment, right? Both have been grieving, no doubt, for the full four days. Lazarus is most likely the younger brother. And so to have a younger sibling die before you is something, I mean, I can't even comprehend that. And I'm sure that they're expressing at least some frustration at Jesus. I mean, Jesus could have healed their brother and he didn't make it on time. And so maybe you've noticed during the reading, but both Martha and Mary questioned Jesus with the exact same thought. With the exact same thought, despite seeing him separately. It's word for word, actually. And no doubt it's the exact thought that they've asked over and over again, both in thought and speech the last few days. What's the thought? Is this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So how does Jesus reply? How does he reply to their distress and to their grief? Well, to Martha, firstly, Jesus replies with a real authority. That just seems to cut straight through her grief. He challenges and presses and claims in a weighty way. See, while while she tells Jesus that the ship has sailed to heal Lazarus, Jesus replies to her, what do you mean? I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, you need to hear this. There's pretty much a rebuke to Martha. Jesus is saying, even though he's dead, he can still live. Don't you believe this? Now, nobody sane would say words like this, right? Honestly, like, who would say something like that? If somebody is dead, they're dead especially if they've been in the tomb for four days. Now, it's really interesting. Some Jewish historian sources point out that some Jews actually believed that the soul of the deceased would stay, right? The soul of the deceased would stay near the grave for three days. Almost like, because they're trying trying to get back in. They're trying to get back into the body. Sort of like a postman waiting for someone at the door. They're trying to get back into the body. But by the fourth day, when they really start to see the decomposition that's taking place, the soul just decides then to leave. That's according to some historians. So Lazarus has now covered all bases, right? He's truly, truly dead. And Jesus pops along and says the words, like, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
If you're to say to me, he who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die, you must genuinely believe that you must be divine. That you think that you can raise someone to life. Now, just as a quick side point, I know that there are some of you here that are already thinking, well, divinity, miracles, raising people from the dead? That's not real. Christianity, Christians seriously believe this stuff still? That's for fantasy shows. That's for movies. And if that's you this morning, if you're thinking that, I just want to acknowledge that, yes, you're making a legitimate statement, but for a moment, can I just push back in two ways? Push, push back a little bit in two ways. Firstly, if you don't believe in miracles, can you actually draw a line between when the ordinary becomes the extraordinary? Can, can you draw a line for when that happens? I mean, we'd all agree, right, that miracles exist. If they, should, if they exist, they should be classed in the extraordinary bracket. But at what point do they kind of become that? If you think about it, the term extraordinary is actually very relative. There is little distinction between the extraordinary miracle and, say, God ordinarily providing. For example, the term that is often used to describe miracles in the Bible, it's a word that's called wonder. Right? The term that's often used is wonder. The term is used to describe miracles like floating iron axe heads. It's used to describe when uh, water is turned to wine, this wonder language. But at the very same time, the term wonder is also used when God feeds his creatures. And so, yes, it's true. If it's true, it's incredible that God can do a miracle like feeding the Israelites in the wilderness with bread from heaven. But at least at some level, isn't it even more wonderful that God somehow manages to provide and feeds absolutely every living thing on the earth? At least from one perspective then, isn't God doing miracles all the time around us? But secondly, if we were to define miracles for a second, right? I'll give you a popular definition for miracles, see if you agree or not. Miracles are an event that is inexplicable by natural law, but only attributable to a supernatural cause. Miracles are an event that are inexplicable by natural law, but only attributable to a supernatural cause. If we agree with a definition like that, and it sounds pretty plausible, then surely, hypothetically, right, if a supernatural, perfect being, a creator and a designer of life did exist, couldn't something like coming back from the dead not only be possible, possible but actually rational? If you genuinely believe in a supernatural being, surely a miracle like what we read today is possible. I mean, see, the topic of the conversation it doesn't, isn't just miracles itself. It can't stop there. The, mir- the, the conversation actually needs to move to whether you actually believe a God exists. Because if a God can be proven plausibly to exist, then surely miracles like resurrections would be small fry. What I'm trying to say is if you believe in a higher being, why isn't it possible for this to be true? But if you don't believe in a higher being, I want to question, have you genuinely considered why not? But coming back, right, coming back, Jesus replies to Martha by claiming to be God, the one that gives everything life and keeps everything alive. So that's Martha, but Jesus doesn't just respond to Martha, he responds to Mary. How does Jesus reply to Mary? Have a look at verse 32. 
when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you would be here, my brother would not have died. There's a thought again. So how does Jesus reply? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved her. Instead of the rebuking claim of divinity that Jesus speaks to Martha, Jesus in front of Mary is so moved. He is so troubled. He is so stirred with emotion that he joins with the chorus of the weeping. Instead of a distinct, strong, rebuking reply, Jesus just moments later is speechless. He's overcome with emotion and shock. He can only break out the words, where is the location of his tomb? I mean, why is there such sharp opposite reactions? What's going on? It's not like Jesus suddenly forgot what he'd said to Martha. It's not like Jesus is like Bruce Banner who kind of changes according to his emotion and becomes the Hulk. You see, what is going on is John, the author of this account, is trying to show us something deeper about who Jesus is. See, friends, when we see two sides of Jesus in this account, when he gives both answers, what John is pointing us to is he is trying to, for us to see that Jesus is both the divine God, but also a vulnerable human. That Jesus is the divine God, but also a vulnerable human. See, his bold declaration to Martha that he is the divine author of life helps Martha, but yet his love for Mary in the shadow of Lazarus' death overwhelms him to tears as he grieves with her for the death of her brother. Right? Before Martha, we have a powerful God. Before Mary, we see a vulnerable man. They are both there in the one person. Jesus is both God and man. That's what John's trying to point us to see. Guys, this is huge. To begin to understand the Christian solution to death means that we have to comprehend that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That Jesus, no less God himself, would leave the throne room of heaven in his infinite glory and splendor as a source of life and enter the world to become a weak, finite man who experiences death on earth. Why is this important to the solution? Why is this important to the death of death? We'll come back to this in a moment. We'll piece it all together. But Jesus, Jesus just doesn't encounter Martha and Mary. He encounters Lazarus, doesn't he? The dead Lazarus. And so I want you to imagine the scene from verse 38. The passage reads, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Let's pause there for a moment. right? I want you to imagine with me a typical tomb. Um, you ma just picture a hillside. And what is in the hillside is they've, they've kind of made this massive hole in the hillside. It's huge. It's a hollowed out hole. And it's a large tomb. It doesn't, it doesn't just contain Lazarus' body, I'm pretty sure. It, it contains up to eight other bodies inside. Right? It's a big, big tomb. A big rock in front. So you've got the hillside, you've got the hollowed hole, you've got the rock in front, you've got the bodies inside. Now I want you to turn your gaze to Jesus. Notice John, the author, deliberately describes Jesus as deeply moved. Deeply moved. Now this isn't Jesus just overcome with emotion like before. This verse also includes a word that means to bellow with anger. 
to bellow with anger. See, Jesus isn't just emotional and grieving as he approaches the tomb. He is angry. He is furious. He is full of rage. Why is Jesus so angry? Why is he bellowing in anger? Why is he so overcome with rage? What sparked this? Well, most biblical scholars agree that he's not angry at Martha or Mary. He's, he's, he's angry instead at death. He's furious at death's presence in the world. He's furious that death takes away. He's furious that the suffering and weeping that death causes. He's furious that death takes a vibrant life and empties it of all vitality. I don't know if you've ever been beside a deathbed. But if you have, you'll know that when a person on a deathbed eventually passes, they get very cold. They go pale. And as the body freezes, as it stiffens, the body reacts so much that sometimes even appearance can change. So much so that extensive makeup is needed if you're going to have a funeral. The deceased really appear to be a shell of their former selves. I haven't been doing this church ministry thing for a very long time. So thankfully I haven't been beside too many deathbeds. But each time that I have, you can't help but feel how wrong death is and how out of place it is. If you've ever felt the same way, friends, whether through personal or impersonal experience, if you see death and just go, man, that does not belong, that is so not right, Jesus' anger at Lazarus' tomb directly affirms your feeling. Jesus' anger reinforces God's perspective that death does not belong in his world. So if you come back to the scene with Jesus, an angry Jesus, before a large tomb, a raging Jesus, hating death because as man, because his death has taken away his dear brother and friend, but raging at death because he is God, because death does not belong to his world, Jesus is not saying, take away the stone. He's yelling it. He's yelling, take away the stone. And so you just try to imagine what happens next. There's a small objection from Martha because the body stinks after being dead for so long. There's a few men, most likely, that from the crowd that help, help roll the stone away. And if I were writing a movie, Jesus would be standing front and center before the tomb. You'd have Mary and Martha behind him. You'd have the crowd leaning in to see what is about to happen. You'd have the, you'd just, just feel the anticipation of the crowd. And Jesus, after a quick prayer, he yells, Lazarus, come out. And out of the shadows, still wrapped in strips of linen and cloth, and over his face is Lazarus. Right, you imagine the uproar. You imagine the cries of delight. You imagine the awe and wonder. Right? How many jaws would be on the ground just seeing something like that? Does anybody know the, the meaning of the name Lazarus? Um, I'd be super impressed if you did. I, I didn't know. It was just as I was researching, I, I kind of just came across it. Um, but Lazarus actually means God has helped. Lazarus means God has helped. So coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, this entire account that we've examined is all about God helping, isn't it? Or God Lazarusing. God has helped. God has Lazarus Martha. God has helped. God has Lazarus Mary. 
Jesus has Lazarus, Lazarus. But underneath all of that, Jesus has Lazarus, humanity, by dealing with death. So how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus do this? How does Jesus deal with death? Firstly, remember, we're coming back to what we talked about earlier. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that they were going to Judea rather than Bethany where Lazarus was. See, that'd be like me saying, next weekend I'm going up to the central coast rather than Terrigal. They're both true, they're both correct, but the central coast is a broader description, right? You see, the reason why Jesus said Judea is because he was hinting at a broader purpose. Jesus wasn't just thinking Bethany, he was thinking further. There are other hints in our passage, right? I'll flick over to that slide now. Have a look, there are three references to different geographical um, bits. In verse 18, we read that, Bethany was less than three kilometers or two miles in your Bible from Jerusalem. In verses 7 to 8, we find that last time he was here, the Jews tried to execute him through public stoning. And yet Jesus is going back. And at the end of the account in verse 53, we read that from this day onwards, the Sanhedrin, that is, um, uh, Sanhedrin are basically the, the supreme Jewish religious, political, and legal council in Jerusalem. They, they're beginning to plot to take Jesus' life. So what is John the author trying to get us to understand? That as Jesus enters Bethany, and therefore Judea, as he raises Lazarus from the dead, what is going to happen after this is that it will trigger the events that will lead to Jesus' own death. This is the start. Up to this point, they've kind of just been talking about it. But after raising Lazarus from the dead, this is going to bring a chain of events that is lead, going to lead to Jesus' own death. The death of death requires Jesus to die. Why Jesus? Well, it starts with humanity needing help. It starts with humanity needing to be Lazarus. Right? Keep with me, right? This is big, but it's kind of heavy, but keep with me. We know that the problems in the world do not stem from God. Ultimately, we know they come from us. They stem from us. They stem from our hearts. They stem from the heart of humanity. We don't need to look at the terrors just in the past week, like um, in Nice, in Turkey. We don't need to look at the shootings in Dallas to know that humanity have a tremendous capacity for pride, for anger, for war, for violence, for hurt and selfishness. And if we're honest and examine ourselves as well, we, we know that we are part of this problem. We have an enormous capacity for those very same things, don't we? And despite all our good intentions, I don't know many of you, I'm sure all of you are great people, right? but, but dis despite that, those tendencies pour out all too often, don't they? The Bible makes it known that our capacity to do wrong and the capacity for wrong lies at the responsibility of nobody but ourselves. The Bible also makes it known that the punishment for this tendency it, for wrong is, is death. And that's been the case since the foundation of the world. And like a right judge, it's the doer that must own the punishment. That's you, that's me, that's you, all of humanity. And so friends, Jesus needs to be human to own the punishment that humanity deserves. But Jesus needs to be God to be able to own 
the punishment that humanity deserves. Right? Jesus needs to be human to own the punishment that humanity deserves, but Jesus needs to be God to be able to own the punishment that humanity deserves. In other words, if Jesus was not human, he wouldn't be able to represent us. He wouldn't be able to represent humanity. But if Jesus was not God, he'd be like us in every way. He'd have the capacity and tendency for wrong. He couldn't die for others because he'd have to die for his own. Jesus has to be both God and man completely. And that's why we see Jesus' divinity when he's speaking to Martha and the, and, and the Lazarus raising. That's why we see Jesus' humanity when he's grieving with Mary. The question we need to ask is, did Jesus know that all this was to take place? Did Jesus know that all this was about to happen? That this raising of Lazarus would lead to his death? Absolutely, is the answer. As one preacher put it, Jesus knew that the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself into the grave. He knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to summon his own. Despite knowing all that was to come, just knowing that coming to Bethany would mark his final days, knowing that the raising of Lazarus would usher in his own death, Jesus approaches the tomb, trembling, deeply moved by love for Lazarus, filled with anger at the wrongness of death, and he cries, Lazarus, come out. And we know if we continue to read in the Gospel of John that just literally a week later, Jesus will approach not Lazarus' tomb, but a Roman cross. He'll be trembling, he'll be deeply moved by love for us, he'll be filled with anger at the wrongness of death, and he won't cry, Lazarus, come out, but he will cry, it is finished. So firstly, how does Jesus' Lazarus' humanity from death? By dying a death only he can die. But secondly, Jesus helps humanity from death by resurrection. By resurrection. See, the point of Jesus encountering Lazarus and raising him from the dead is to ultimately foreshadow something greater. It's a similar concept to movie trailers. Right? A, trailer is decide, a trailer is designed to make you go, wow, how good is this movie going to be? I can't wait. It's meant to whet your appetite for the greater film that is to come. See, Lazarus' resurrection is meant to whet our appetite for Jesus' resurrection. See, Lazarus' resurrection doesn't prove that death is defeated. Why? Because he dies again. It's not lasting. It's temporary. It's an imperfect resurrection because death still ends up winning. Death doesn't die if it's not defeated. Unlike Lazarus, however, Jesus' resurrection is not temporary. It's permanent. When Jesus rises, he doesn't die again, proving to humanity that death has truly died. And if this is true, then death no longer is the end for the follower of Jesus. See, the follow, for the follower of Jesus, the hope of the solution of death to death is not some vague spiritual hope of survival. Our roots for the future is actually based on an event in the past, the resurrection of Jesus. And just like he predicted his death would be temporary, he likewise predicts that our death will be temporary too. And so we can confidently declare with the earliest Jesus followers, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? For the follower of Jesus, yes, we will experience death, but it's not the end. Jesus will say, says to us, just like he said of Lazarus, our friend has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake them 
up. As I get Tim to come up, and as we draw to a close, um, I shared right at the start that I was going to be vulnerable, and I didn't really. Um, but I just wanted to share with you something that's happened in um, the Chung household just over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's been it's been difficult. Uh, two Tuesdays ago, <coughs> two Tuesdays ago, my mum received a phone call um, from her from her older sister about their cousin. Um, their cousin living in San Francisco. My aunt living in San Francisco. Uh, so my mum's best friend. My mum's sister told her that that my aunt's partner in San Francisco, a healthy former professional swimmer, had unexpectedly collapsed and stopped breathing while swimming laps in a pool and died shortly after. My aunt in Hong Kong who was calling my mum, she only found out because she was calling her my aunt in San Francisco about another matter and couldn't reach her for days and eventually she picked up and told her what was going on. This guy, he was young, he was, I don't even think he was 50, maybe early 50s at most, six foot three, strong guy. And the funeral had already been had without anybody knowing about it. My mum later found out that my aunt in San Fran was in so much pain and grieved so furiously that she had lost her voice for days. This is her, this is her best friend, and, and yet she chose to keep it to herself. She told no one in her family about it. She didn't ask for help. She didn't ask to be comforted. She didn't ask for support. And my mum has found it so hard not being able to help her in any way because she doesn't want help. Please forgive me, friends, for my forwardness this morning. But maybe some of you here have some similarities with my aunt. Because even in the reality of death, knowing that that is your fate, knowing that that is our problem, you would decide not to seek help. And if that's you, you know, if you know that that's you, please know that you aren't just ignoring a best friend like my mom would have been to at best offer some comfort. You are ignoring the very one who poured out his life and loved you so much in order to provide the solution and the defeat of death. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus has loved you. He weeps for you. The very son of God became human, vulnerable, killable out of love for you. And perhaps God is prompting you to respond to Him. Don't let this opportunity pass. If, that's, if you know that that's you, do business with God. And if you are here this morning and you want to respond to God, if you want to say, yes, Dom, I want to say yes to Jesus this morning. I want to receive this amazing news that Jesus has defeated death. Yes, for everybody, but for me. If you want to receive this amazing news that Jesus loves you so much that the immortal God was willing to become a mortal human to die for you and rise for you so that death would no longer have a hold of you, if you want to do that, 
If you want to receive the tremendous news that Jesus takes the finality of death and turns it into nothing but sleep, if you've realized for the first time that you perhaps need help, you perhaps need help in a way that only Jesus can provide, if you want to express that newfound belief that Jesus, that you want Jesus to be this Savior for you, I'm going to ask you to do something incredibly bold in a moment. So I might get everybody to close their eyes. For those of you that that applies to, you know who you are. In a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And it's a prayer that simply tells God exactly what we've tried to express. I'd like you to pray with me, not necessarily out loud, but just pray with me. That's, that's big, but I'd like you to do one more thing. If that's you, I'd like you to shoot your hand up while you're praying. Nobody's going to see it except me. But I firmly believe that when you express outwardly what's, what's going on, the convictions that are happening inside, that you're really confirming it for yourself. It's for you. And so if you, if you want to do that here this morning, if that's you, I'll, please, could you shoot up your hand for a second? That's great. I see you. If you don't mind keeping your hand up, I'm, I'd love to pray. I'd love to pray. Pray with me. Dear God, I humbly admit for maybe the first time I need help. I deserve death. We all deserve death. But thank you that Jesus died in my place. And that by raising, he defeated death. I want to right now receive Jesus as my personal Savior. Thank you for loving me so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.